My name is Terry O'Reilly. Before you try to make sense of the world of modern persuasion, it's useful to spend a few moments here, in 1867, in the garden on the estate of John Sholto Douglas, the ninth Marcus of Queensbury. Champagne, sir. Thanks. An adequate little vintage. For countless centuries, and long before men learned to memorize slugging percentages and burp the alphabet, they've indulged in the occasional scrap, row, tussle, wrangle, fracas, and every so often, brouhaha. By the 1860s, those of us here in civilized society sought to dignify the pugilistic arts by creating a set of rules by which gentlemen could duke it out. The task fell to Britain's John Graham Chambers to create a code of conduct for fighting. By Chambers' new code, when two gentlemen wanted to settle their differences... Come, sir, let's do it. Be warned, sir, I shall give you such a punch. They would restrict their bout to a ring 24 feet square. They'd fight in three-minute rounds with one-minute intervals. A chap deemed down for a count of ten would be registered as loser. Though Chambers composed them, they would come to be known as the Marcus of Queensbury rules, if, for no other reason, his lordship helped bankroll amateur athletics. Call it naming rights, 19th century style. From this set of rules, modern boxing evolved. This evolution coincides neatly with the modern age of persuasion. Since the mid-19th century, a growing army of advertisers and marketers have engaged in millions of scraps of their own. And, as in boxing, they're bound by rules and boundaries. Today, regulations prevent advertisers from promising what they can't deliver and from fibbing about themselves or their competition. Yet there is one ad category where combatants are not bound by advertising's rules of engagement. <laughs> Political campaign ads. At their worst, the nastiest, truth-stretchingest, eye-gougingest, promise-anythingest, do-this-or-die ad creative on the planet. And there's no referee to stop them. And therein lies the trouble with political ads today. There's never a Marcus of Queensbury around when you need one in the age of persuasion. I want chicken. I want liver. I want a bottle of Coca-Cola, need. That's us. I see me the ball. Hey, great. A toothpaste should fight tapping. I can't believe I ate that all. 1957 Chevrolet. And now, Terry O'Reilly and the Age of Persuasion. There you go again. Ye gentlemen and ladies fair who grace this famous city. Just listen if you've time to spare while I rehearse our duty. Times, they change. If you care to venture back some nine score years to 1824, election campaigns sounded like this. Oh, Kentucky, 
the hunters of Kentucky. That ditty, sung to the tune of Unfortunate Miss Bailey, was the campaign song for U.S. presidential hopeful Andrew Jackson. And despite its breakneck pace and blood-stirring prose, it would be another four years before Mr. Jackson could hang his monogrammed hand towels in the executive mansion privy. Today, election campaigns throughout this part of the world have a decidedly different sound. He gives us the largest tax increase in American history. Bill Clinton is an unusually good liar. Anything like it in 25 years of public life, full of lies, and he knows it. Attack ads, known with contempt hereabouts as U.S.-style attack ads, have become the centerpiece of American campaigns and are spreading north to Canada. At best, they're witty, biting, and wrapped tightly around kernels of truth. At their worst, they're ham-handed, blunt, humorless, and so formulaic that writing them has become as easy as paint by numbers. North Korea, close to a nuclear missile to reach America, yet... Bad candidate. Opposes deploying a missile defense system now. Iran, also close, yet... Bad candidate. Opposes creating the bunker-busting bombs that may be needed to stop them. China, drilling oil just 50 miles off our coast, yet... Bad candidate. Opposes us doing the same, putting our energy at risk. Terrorists trying to enter our country, yet bad candidate. Comes out for amnesty for illegals. We just can't take a chance on bad candidate. I'm good candidate. And I approve this message. To borrow a phrase of marketing parlance, they suck at subtle. In the age of persuasion, advertising has become the multi-billion dollar cornerstone of electioneering. Yet campaign ads have fallen into a series of traps and they can't get up. Today, major campaigns rarely resist attack ads because they know their opponents will attack them. They feel they have to promise the moon because it all boils down to a single day and there's no reward for second place. They have to entertain because voters have little patience for civil discussion about issues. They have to concentrate on optics and appearance because in the age of persuasion, a single image can, and does, trump a thousand words of oratory. And today's candidates have to pretend they're perfect, because opponents are sure to magnify their faults. It's no secret that voters dislike campaign ads. What's more, candidates hate them. Campaign workers hate them. Those who work on them typically hate them. Though you'd rarely sense it, Election campaign ads are often created by the best and brightest in advertising. Trouble is, within the all-or-nothing pressure cooker of a campaign, without the gestation period ad creative so often needs, and with no time for the team's pluribus to become unum, the value of these dream teams rarely exceeds the sum of their parts. Say this for today's political ads, not everyone hates them. Well, it didn't take long to come up with another series of attack ads. There are ads. new election ads which may cause some controversy. Joining yes, us now to talk about these new group. ads and everything parliamentarian is our panel. Yes, I have seen the ads, and, and I believe you have the, you're in possession of them, too. I guess Broadcasters love campaign ads, especially attack ads. First, they generate revenue. Then, they provoke a response from the other guy, which generates more revenue. Then, as a bonus... Attack ads provide content for newscasters, analysis shows, and political panels. 
which in turn means free airplay for a campaign. You've seen a lot of ads in your day and you've written more than your share. What do you think? Will it work? Truth is, to find the last election completely bereft of dirty tricks, duplicity and scandal, you'd have to go all the way back to, well, at least as far back as... Okay, there's never been such a thing. With the possible exception of the U.S. presidential election of 1789, when George Washington ran unopposed. Washington, like many early U.S. presidents, including Lincoln, refused to campaign. But that didn't make him shenanigan-free. It's widely believed that in 1757, in order to get a seat in the Virginia House, George Washington purchased and distributed more than a quart of rum, beer, and hard cider for each of the district's 391 voters. In Canada and the States, in those early days before the secret ballot, votes could be and were bought for as little as a dollar or a drink of whiskey, and as much as $22 in one New York mayoral race. Often, when a voter couldn't be enticed, he might find himself on the business end of a whooping. Ouch. Back then, as now, campaigning was about the oh-so-subtle art of dissing the other guy. More than two centuries back, Yale President Timothy Dwight had warned that if Thomas Jefferson were elected, the Bible will be burned, the French Marseillaise will be sung in Christian churches, and we may see our wives and daughters the victims of legal prostitution. Opponents of Ulysses Grant were given a small metal pig worn around the neck like a charm. Hold it up to the light, and you could see the general's likeness inside. In 1864, Harper's Weekly listed the names hurled at Abraham Lincoln, including... Filthy storyteller, despot, liar, thief, braggart, buffoon, usurper. And once you clear... Monster, ignoramus Abe, old scoundrel, perjurer, robber, swindler, tyrant, fiend. And once you... Butcher land pirate, and a long, lean, lank, lantern-jawed, high-cheek-boned, spavined, rail-splitting stallion. Thank you. You're welcome. And once you clear customs at the end of name-calling, you enter the land of rumor-mongering. In 1884, opponents of Grover Cleveland spread a rumor that he'd fathered a child out of wedlock, forming the taunt, Mama, where's my pa? When Cleveland took office, they added the line, gone to the White House, ha, ha, ha. Fashions in sin change, wrote Lillian Hellman. When politics meets the craft of persuasion, sin is scandal, and scandal is leverage. The trick is to embrace the ever-changing sin du jour. In 1800, voting was open to everyone, provided you were an adult white male Protestant landowner. So it was a big deal when Thomas Jefferson, who gave as good as he got, was accused of practicing deism, a new age and decidedly unchristian religion, hence the hubbub about Bible burning. 
By the time rumors circulated that he sired several children by one of his slaves, Miss Sally Hemings, Mr. J needed a walk-in closet to house all the skeletons. By the mid-20th century, philandering, as sins go, was passé, and the extramarital flings of Franklin Roosevelt and Dwight Eisenhower were widely ignored. For JFK, it wasn't his skirt-chasing, but his Roman Catholicism that posed political problems. In the 1860s, Abe Lincoln was vilified for challenging the institution of slavery. A century later, Republican nominee Barry Goldwater would be mortified to receive an endorsement from the Ku Klux Klan. That said, some political sins, bless them, are eternal, including greed, tainted campaign money, and good old-fashioned dirty tricks. That's it was just a century ago, when radio was but a gleam in its inventor's eyes, that elections revolved around issues and ideas. Campaign teams struggled for ways to make the personality of their candidate part of the equation. They should have been careful what they wished for. My name is Terry O'Reilly, and this is The Age of Persuasion. My there isn't anything the matter with... Wednesday, July 14th, 1922. President Warren G. Harding dedicated a memorial to Francis Scott Key outside Fort McHenry near Baltimore. Fledgling Baltimore radio station WEAR broadcast the speech live. It was through radio that the age of persuasion shifted into high gear, and with it, electoral politics changed forever. I believe in the American Constitution. Harding's successor, Calvin Coolidge, knew it. Until then, a massive audience for a political speech was measured in the thousands. Using radio, Coolidge was the first to reach millions at a time. But I shall do what I can to encourage American citizens and resources. Not everyone was so forward-thinking. When confronted with a radio microphone, one-time Secretary of State Eliu Root barked, Take that thing away. I can talk to a Democrat, but I can't talk to a dead thing. These Republican leaders have not been content with attacks on me, or on my wife, or on my son. They now include my little dog, Sally. <laughs> Coolidge learned to use radio, but it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt who learned to master it. Well, of course, I don't resent attacks. And my family don't resent attacks. But Tala does With radio conveying the nuances of voice and personality, the FDR era marked a permanent shift in electoral politics. Issues had given way to personalities. That's a woman for you. I asked her to get my shirts whiter. What does she call this, whiter? That's just like a man. How can I get his shirts as white as he wants? Unless I bleach the life out of them. With the 50s came enormous changes to broadcast advertising and political campaigns. Live ads, with one long message, gave way to recorded, edited, more neatly packaged ads. Some used characters, story, and scintillating real-life drama. Boy, really white shirts at last. 
How did you do it? Just fab. And I didn't have to leave. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. In 1952, those same principles were used to package the widely admired but less than scintillating Dwight Eisenhower with animated visuals by the Walt Disney Corp and a jingle by, no kidding, Irving Berlin. Add giant Rosser Reeves, who gave the world the USP, or Unique Selling Proposition, helped do for Eisenhower what he had done for M&Ms and Anison. Eisenhower answers America. Using polling data, ads were packaged to show Americans posing a single question and Eisenhower offering a fatherly solution. Sort of a 60-second Ike knows best. You know what things cost today. High prices are just driving me crazy. Yes, my Mamie gets after me about the high cost of living. It's another reason why I say it's time for a change. Time to get back to an honest dollar and an honest dollar's worth. Sixteen years later, media guru Roger Ailes made his bones, politically speaking, finding a way to package and sell Richard Nixon to a television audience. It is time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. Ailes coached Nixon in camera technique and helped shape the modern face of attack ads, while framing Nixon as the man who could find order in the bloody, frightening chaos of 1968. So I pledge to you, we shall have order in the United States. I'd rather have a man with a hole in his shoe than a hole in everything he says. Political ads are positive, negative, or comparative, and often a combination of all three. Dr. Frank Lutz, who wrote an incredible book called Words That Work, It's Not What You Say, It's What People Hear, believes people base their vote on the following in order of importance. Personality, image, authenticity, and vibe. Issues don't make the list. Why? Because they're often complex, sometimes impossible to solve, nowhere near as entertaining, and, least forgivably, they aren't good television. Former Prime Minister Kim Campbell was once ridiculed for suggesting campaigns aren't the best place to dissect complex issues. The fact that she was right didn't help her any. In the 50s, Adelaide Stevenson tried filling the airwaves with lengthy speeches on the issues and learned, through losses in 52 and again in 56, that campaigning on issues in the age of persuasion is akin to selling steamed Brussels sprouts in a candy store. A savvier campaign might have traded more on Stevenson's legendary wit. Once, when he learned that Reverend Norman Vincent Peale had advised Baptists to vote against him, Stevenson answered, Speaking as a Christian, I find the Apostle Paul appealing and the Apostle Peale appalling. Modern campaigns are about effective marketing, but just as often, they're about mistakes. In 1948, as presidential nominee Thomas Dewey spoke from the rear platform of a train, an engineer caused the car to lurch backwards, dangerously close to the assembled crowd. A furious Dewey called the engineer a dangerous lunatic who should be shot at dawn. The outburst would work against him. As one reporter described it, the train took off with a jerk. 
Howard Dean screamed his way out of a nomination. Edmund Muskie wept in response to allegations falsely made about him and his family. Dubbed a weakling, Muskie was through. Never mind issues. Elections today can be won or lost on moments like this. A group of American flags, on stands, falling like dominoes behind Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton after a press scrum. Decades before Malcolm Gladwell wrote Blink, about our remarkable gift for assessing things at a glance, campaign teams were mastering the art of optics. Few remember the senatorial campaign slogan, let's put Robert Kennedy to work for New York. What they do remember is the fruit of some aesthetic advice from ad guy George Lois, that RFK appear as often as possible with his jacket off and his sleeves rolled up. Ultimately though, it's the attack ads that are most effective. In the age of persuasion, consumers have fast learned that promises and platitudes are cheap currency. Positive campaigns are as unappealing as those good newspapers and broadcasts that pop up every few years. Negatives are more than good television. They're easier to believe. The cynicism among today's voters is built on years of hard lessons. They've learned the hard way that a candidate saying he's honest doesn't make it so. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. That being smart doesn't make you honest. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. That being nice doesn't make you bright. My fellow Americans, I'm pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin <laughs> bombing in five minutes. In 1976, the U.S. Supreme Court granted election ads free speech protection under the First Amendment. In Canada, campaign ads are expressly exempt from the provisions of the Ad Standards Code. With everything hanging, all or nothing, on a single day, and without the fetters of rules, limits, or a code of conduct, campaign spots invariably paint the issues and the candidates as completely good or completely bad, right or wrong, black or white, sometimes literally. You needed that job, and you were the best qualified, but they had to give it to a minority because of a racial quota. Is that really fair? Harvey Gantt says it is. Gantt supports Ted Kennedy's racial quota law that makes the color of your skin more important than your qualifications. You'll vote on this issue next Tuesday. Four racial quotas, Harvey Gantt. Against racial quotas, Jesse Helms. Election campaigns never seek to convert the other side. They're designed to bolster those already on side and attract what John A. McDonald called the loose fish, voters who can swim either way. The prize of the modern campaign is to control the ballot question, the last question voters ask themselves before making their mark. Today, ballot questions are typically about issues, but the answer is informed by emotion. Shaping emotion is all about the craft of persuasion, and today, persuasion is entirely about money. Abe Lincoln was the first big campaign spender in the age of persuasion, dropping a cool $100,000 on his 1860 bid, double that of opponent Stephen Douglas. In the U.S., 
where no free airtime is offered to candidates, campaign spending on presidential races tripled between 2000 and 2004 to more than $600 million. That's 10 times the cost of a general election in Britain, where airtime is offered free to political parties. Canada, meanwhile, offers a stew of free and paid airtime for political ads. In the end, elections aren't about ideas so much as they're about TV. Are there candidates mad enough, in various senses of the word, to speak out against hefty campaign spending? Mr. Chairman and gentlemen of the convention, I would be presumptuous indeed. A century back, William Jennings Bryan tried it, and he lost, count them, three presidential elections in a row. But this is not a contest between persons, the humblest citizen in all the land. Today, elections have become the biggest one-day sale in marketing. It remains one of the few competitions in which there's no second prize. A boxer knocked on his keister still gets a share of the purse. There are corners of professional sport in which losing still pays big. I give you the Toronto Maple Leafs. The reward for placing second on election day is usually about debt and heartache. With stakes this great, campaigns feel they can't afford to let you like the other guy even a little. Which is why candidates are framed as saints or sinners, good or evil, Holmes or Moriarty. Election ads are entirely about marketing, but without their own Marcus of Queensbury rules, people are seeing them as marketing at its worst. Campaign ads conjure the image of two hockey fighters searching for a linesman to break them up, neither daring to stop swinging, lest the other guy clock him. In some lofty corners of my business, modern campaign ads, at their worst, raise another concern some warn of the damage they do to the reputation of advertising itself. As one industry giant, John O'Toole, lamented, political commercials encourage the deceptive, the destructive, and the degrading. Ad giant David Ogilvie declared, political advertising ought to be stopped. It's the only really dishonest kind of advertising that's left. Unquote. The question is, who's to stop it? Until someone can answer that, the popular view of the institutions of politics and advertising may erode a little more with each election, in whose darkest moments the better angels of our nature are nowhere to be found in the Age of Persuasion. The Age of Persuasion is created and written by Terry O'Reilly and Mike Tennant. Honest, reliable, hard-working, value-driven guys who wonder... Can we really afford another four years of engineer Keith Oman? Title theme by Ari Posner and Ian Lefevre, who approved this message. The Age of Persuasion is produced for CBC Radio by Pirate Toronto.